Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Gikan, and um, I was asked to offer the talk. Um, everyone hear this? No. Oh, I never do this thing correctly. Hold on a sec. Is that better? That's that's all good. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, how's everyone doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Tired? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm tired too. Just so you know, everyone in history who has been in session for two days has, has been tired. So we're in, we're in good company. Um, that's, uh, that's okay, right? Um, I just want to start by um, offering thanks to uh, Chimio-sensei. Um, I believe she's um, offering face-to-face, -face, so she's not in the Zendo right now, but... Um, I really appreciate her coming here to um, hold space for us and to offer teachings. Um, as I understand it, she was just at the Zen Center of San Francisco, I think just like a day or two before coming here. So I, I, I cannot imagine doing Seshin, having traveled from the West Coast to here, on top with Seshin on top of that. So um, if we're tired, just imagine how tired she must be. So yeah, um, so thank you, Chimio. So, this is our, as you know, this is our, our BIPOC, BIPOC session. Our first one that we have done in our, what, 40 plus year history. Um, that alone is pretty momentous, I think. Um, and I think maybe some of us who've been doing this equity and anti-racism work for a while within the order, and I see some people here, um, Chike, Joshin, Ninsei, Jill, been doing this for a while. You know, this is, um, in some ways, you know, it was, it was inevitable that this would happen, right? Just given the, the, the push um, towards racial equity in this country within Buddhism, right, and within our own order. But in some ways, it wasn't inevitable, right? It took a lot of work. And I think maybe um, a, number of, a number of years ago, I don't know if we necessarily would have thought that this would have happened within here, but it did, right? So that's big. In addition to that, this is the first session where it's been staffed by non, completely by non-monastics. Usually there would be a row of monastics sitting right there who would pretty much you know, do the space holding, right? Who would have a lot of the big service positions. And not this time. Right, this is staffed completely by either lay people or by the non-monastic residents. Right, so that's another first. And it's also, as far as I can tell, the, the first session where almost half the people, half of us, are newcomers doing their first session at Zen Mountain Monastery. And that is just, that is just rocking. I, am, I was so psyched when I heard that. Right, so um, that's, that's amazing. Right, so um, we broke a lot of ground. We're breaking a lot of ground over the last day, day and a half. So that's, that's a good thing. So on this auspicious occasion, I wanted to kind of step back a little bit for this talk. And I want to look at, you know, what exactly does Buddhism promise us? We've done all this work. We're here. We're tired. We're achy. We're in pain, right? We're, not, we're certainly not comfortable, not any of us, right, including me. Why are we doing this? Right? What exactly does Buddhism offer us? What's the promise? So I wanted to um, 
look at that with the passage from the Lotus Sutra. The Lotus Sutra, for those of you who don't know, is probably one of the most loved and the most revered sutras in Mahayana Buddhism. Um, this is a short passage, and this is the, uh, the Buddha speaking. He says, um, when living beings witness the end of an eon, and all is consumed in a great fire, this, my land, remains safe and tranquil, constantly filled with heavenly and human beings. The halls and pavilions, the gardens and groves are adorned with various kinds of gems. Trees abound in flowers and fruit, and living beings enjoy themselves at ease. The gods strike heavenly drums, constantly making music, blossoms rain down, scattering over the Buddha and the great assembly. My pure land is not destroyed, yet the multitudes see it as consumed in fire, with anxiety, fear, and suffering, filling it everywhere. Miraculous? Yeah, it is miraculous. So I wanted to look at what is this miracle? Right? What is the pure land that the Buddha is speaking of? How is it related to this land that we're in right now, this world, this time and place? When living beings witness the end of an eon and all is consumed in a great fire, when we witness the end of anything, whether it's the end of a relationship, end of um, um, a stage in our life, the end of a thought, the end of a breath. When we witness the end of anything, we're witnessing impermanence. Um, And impermanence, it's the most uh, basic teaching of Buddhism. And that's because it's the most basic fact of everything. The Soto teacher, Shunryu Suzuki, I think he was asked once to sum up Buddhism in one sentence, and he said, everything changes, period. Right? That's it. Two words. That was the summation of the entire Buddha Dharma right there. Everything changes. Right? In other words, he went right back to the basic teaching of impermanence. In fact, every teaching, right, that I've ever encountered, every sutra I've ever read, every practice that's ever been offered, certainly here, everything from counting the breath all the way on, has impermanence at its foundation. This is a religion that's basically built on a foundation of impermanence. You know, some of, and I want to say that, you know, Buddhism doesn't consider that a problem, right? Things aren't impermanent because they're messed up, right? It's, it's not like there's something wrong with the world because things don't last, right? That, that's not a problem. It's simply a fact. And Buddhism isn't about changing that fact, right? There's a, one of the central teaching, teachers of Zen is uh, Master Dogen. He was a, a 12th century Zen teacher. And one of his real, one of his most popular works is called Genjo Koan. And it opens, it's, it, I think it's a monumental opening. He, basically the first three paragraphs talk about spiritual progress. Right? Each paragraph kind of taking us deeper and deeper and deeper, or maybe higher and higher, depending on how you want to look at it. But what, to me, what the, most, the most poignant part of Genjo Koan isn't that part. 
It's the sentence that follows it. Right? He goes, and yet, right? So that is despite everything he's just said about starting where we start off in practice, coming to realization, letting that realization drop away, and living our life out of a realization that's completely selfless. And yet, flowers fall even if we love them, and weeds grow even if we hate them. Right? That pretty much kills me every time I read it. Because what he's saying is that no matter how spiritually accomplished we are, we're not getting away from the most basic fact of reality, that it doesn't last. Right? We experience that. The Buddha experienced it. He experienced it before he was enlightened. He experienced it after he was enlightened. Right? So Buddhism isn't going to change that, and our spiritual attainment is not going to change that. The world doesn't last. Therefore, what we love will leave us, and what we dread and fear and hate will arrive at our doorstep. Recently, for me anyway, and maybe for a number of us, that's really been driven home, right? Um, I have been very demoralized by what I've been, what's been passing on my, uh, on my news feeds, right? Um, the attacks on reproductive rights, just the whole spate of um, anti-trans legislation that's been kind of hitting, seems to be state by state, um, book bannings, Right, whole communities, whole schools, school systems, right? Places that should be about education, basically siding with ignorance, right? Choosing, thinking that they can simply erase parts of history that they don't want to know about, right? By simply banning books, okay? And of course, much more recently, the skies turning orange or this like puke yellow, depending on whereabouts you lived, Right, the air sort of acrid with smoke um, from the fires in Canada, right, kind of hitting our doorstep, um, including this doorstep, right, initially. Right, it's really been driving home to me that um, how unreliable reality is. Right, constantly changing, right. And at times it seems that, you know, things that I love and value are indeed being consumed in a great fire. You know, it's interesting to think about what do we rely on as we move through this world? Especially in times of stress. Um, As some of you probably know, the, the... the monastery, the, the Mountains and Rivers Order, has an ethics committee that's relatively recent, and we set it up. Um, it's a, a group of people who really are charged with looking into abuses of power, right, that happen, um, oftentimes based around or centering around issues of gender. Um, and one of the things that was, I think we, we talked about recently is, you know, when people are hurt, Right, just thinking about the various things we've had to look into, who do they turn to? You know, they, they often don't turn to the structures of power in the order. Right, they turn to each other. They turn to friends, other residents, who they trust. Right, in other words, and, and that makes sense. Right, it, it's when we're in stress, we 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 rely on who we've come to trust and on what we've come to trust, and it often isn't the structures that are set up. 
even if they're set up to take care of us. With regard to the Ethics Committee, one of the things we want to work on is increasing the trustworthiness of some of the systems of governance here, right? So that it can be clear and accountable and transparent so that people will be safe turning to them right, when they've been hurt. And when we can't trust what's on the outside, we begin to trust, you know, we, we, we then turn to inside, right? in the assumption that our understanding of the world is accurate, the understanding that we have of the world makes sense, and we can use that to navigate things. Um, Buddhism also calls that into question. I remember a number of years ago, um, I almost drowned off the coast of Florida. I was there for a work conference, and what we're, we're sort of staying in, a, in Clearwater, Florida, which is on the the Gulf side, and one morning I got up really, really early before anyone else was awake. I went to the beach, and I decided to take a swim way out. Right, so I, I picked a spot that was way out there. It was like, you know, it had those big like life buoys that are bobbing around the water. I said, okay, there's one way out there. I'm going to swim to it and swim back. So I start, I start swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming, and part, I wasn't even at the the buoy before I knew that I was pretty exhausted at that point. But I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to swim out there and at least touch it. That's what I wanted to do. So I swim way the hell out there, and I, and, I, and I touch the thing, and I realize that I am absolutely exhausted at this point. Like, I, I'm so exhausted, I can't keep swimming anymore, and I can't really even tread water anymore. I'm so tired. And, you know, so he, there I am, you know, in the water, um, completely by myself, and I, I don't know what to do, right? So I start panicking, you know, and um, I start going down, Right, so I'm like kind of going down and like go back up, and I'm going down and going back up. So I'm trying to tread water, and so it's interesting, you know, when when the world around me, which is basically a big body of water, was not going to help me, right? When when that was something I couldn't rely on, it was actually interesting in retrospect. It was scary in the moment, but it was interesting in retrospect as to what what exactly my my mind started to do. Right, it started to go everywhere looking for something to rely on. The first thing. It, it said was, well, somebody on shore is going to rescue me, obviously. So I turn and I look, and obviously there was no one on shore. It was way too early for that. Everyone was still asleep. And then the second thing I said, well, there's got to be a boat. A boat's going to come. A boat's going to come and rescue me. Meanwhile, like, you know, I'm, I'm drinking water. I'm like going down, I'm, like splashing around. I'm like, there's no boat. It's like, no, no, no boat at all, right? And then finally, I'm just like, okay, like my friends are going to be here. Like they're going to be here for me. But my friends are in New Jersey. I'm in Florida, right? <laughs> they weren't going to come around, right? And, and finally, I think my last-ditch effort my mind made was saying, okay, my parents are going to help me. My mom and my dad are going to help me with this one. They're in New Jersey, too, and they don't know how to swim, so I don't know what I was thinking, right? They, even if they were there, they, they, like, they were going like, to come and like, pull me out of like, way out in the water. So, you know, it's interesting, right? At, at, uh, up until that point, I think I sort of worked on the assumption that my mind could pr- was, was pretty much had a basic grasp on reality. Right, that it would pretty much that the structures of my mind and my mental formations could be relied upon, right? And I think maybe we all we all assume that, of course. And it often takes an extreme moment to throw all that into question, right? This is the moment that Buddhism comes into our life, because this is exactly what Buddhism recognizes. 
I want to go back a few centuries before the Lotus Sutra, back into the Pali Canon. Um, there's a well-known sermon called the Fire Sermon that the Buddha gave, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase a part of it. Um, this is again the Buddha speaking. He said, "All is, everything is burning. What exactly is it that's burning? And he starts with the eye. He said, the eye is burning. What the forms that the eye sees are burning. What the eye makes contact with in the world is burning. The feelings, the pleasant or painful feelings that arise when the eyes make contact with the world, that's also burning. Feelings that are neither pleasant nor painful, those are also burning. And then having taken care of the eye, he then goes to the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind in that same construction, kind of cranking it through the way the Pali Canon does, if you've ever read the early sutras, right? Burning, 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 burning. Burning with what? Well, he then goes to that. Yes, burning with what? He said burning with the flame of desire, the flame of hate, the flame of delusion. It's burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, with lamentations, with pain, grief, and despair. This is a really radical reconfiguring of how we approach things, right? Because basically what Buddhism is saying, what the Buddha is saying is that it's not just the outside world that's impermanent and not really reliable. It's our inside world too. That is equally as impermanent. And in some ways it's impermanent in the same way that the outside world is, right? It doesn't last, right? Our thoughts, our feelings, our mental constructions, our perceptions, anything that we use, you know, in, in the Heart Sutra, um, you know, we say uh, form is emptiness, sensation, conception, discrimination, and awareness are likewise like this. Those refer to the skandhas. The skandhas are mental formations that we use basically to make reality. Right? This is how we put a reality in front of us and how we understand that reality and move through that reality. Right? This is basically our experience. Basically, Buddhism says that every one of those things are impermanent and unreliable. And impermanent, and not that, you know, well, they last a little while, so they're permanent a little bit, but then they become, no, they're, they're impermanent like all the way through, right? They're impermanent. They're constant. Everything changes, like Shenryu Suzuki said. So our faculties are unreliable because we're burning with the same things that the world is burning with. You know, it was interesting. I, I've, I've always sort of viewed that experience I had in, in, in Florida as like me versus the Gulf of Mexico, right? And then obviously that's no contest, right? I was, I mean, I, obviously I'm here, I'm alive, but, you know, um, I, 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 I probably, if it had to happen again, I probably wouldn't win that one. But now after some reflection and years of practice, I realized it was actually was me versus my mind. That the Gulf of Mexico was doing exactly what it should be doing, right? It wasn't doing anything wrong, right? That, that, that's not where the enemy was at that time, right? So this is where the teachings start us off. They start us off where we start off, which is basically us versus our minds. We move through a world that's doing what it does, and as it does that, it, can, it profoundly impacts us. Sometimes it harms us. 
And we're moving through that world with an internal world that in a large degree is also doing what it does, doing its own thing. And in, and in doing so, can also impact and harm us and can create harm for others. This is a way to understand the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. How does suffering happen? It happens because our internal world is, is um, it's misunderstood. It's not seen clearly. Again, you know, just like the world isn't doing anything other than what it's supposed to do, right? The skandhas are doing what they're supposed to do as well, right? Our eyes, our ears, our minds, they're working the way they're supposed to. We just don't understand how they're supposed to work. Going back to the Lotus Sutra, the Buddha basically says, you know, my pure land is not destroyed. Yet the multitude, that will be all of us, see it as consumed in fire, anxiety, fear, and other sufferings. To me, the critical word there is see. What he's basically saying is that, you know, this land is pure, right? It is a place of ease, but we don't see it that way. So that's where we start. We start with seeing. See the breath. Right? When you come in here, we give you beginning instruction. What do we do? Basically, we tell you, see the breath. See it until you don't see it anymore. Then see what keeps you from seeing it. Let that thing go and come back to seeing the breath. Right? Essentially, that's where we start you off. Zeroing in, right in, where the Buddha zeroed in on, right? which is our act of actually seeing and experiencing the world. I want to really emphasize that pivotal moment when we see the thought, let it go and come back, right? The act of letting that thought go is really important, right? When we let something go, we're basically letting it return. Like, like where do we let it go to, right? We'll never know because we let it go, right? Once we let it go, it does its thing. But essentially, we're letting it return to its natural state, its natural state of impermanence. In fact, there's some teachings, I think there's some Tibetan teachings actually talk about self-liberating the thought. When we let it go, thoughts and emotions are just do, are free to do what they do, which is simply to go, because they're constantly changing. And over time, we learn to be comfortable within that impermanence. We learn to be comfortable with that constantly flickering, changing schema of perceptions and feelings and thoughts that we just carry with us, you know. Um, this is why we tell people to sit still in the Zendo, okay? I just want to sort of clear that up, right? We're not doing it because we're like hard asses or like we want to be mean to you or something like that or we think that pain is good. We don't, okay? The Buddha didn't think pain was good, all right? Just want to clear that up, all right? This isn't like some religion of masochism here, right? Or, or sadism or anything, right? It's not good, right? We tell you to sit still because by doing that, you know, you're doing something different than, we're doing something different than what we do all the other times, right? We feel something bad, well, we got to do something about it. Right? I remember, I, I used to work as a clinical social worker, and I remember one, one of the clients I was doing psychotherapy with, he was a very fragile, fragile man, a gay Latino man, um, been through a lot of trauma, and, you know, he had profound anxiety. I remember this one session I had. I had like a, um, like a philodendron plant in my office. 
And one session, he was just, he was sat down, he started talking, he looked at the plant, he goes, oh, just one second. And he gets up, he goes to the plant, and, the, you know, philodendrons are green, but one of the leaves was yellow. It was like a dead leaf. And he goes, I just want to, like, remove this leaf. And I just go, don't do that. And he goes, I'm just going to remove the leaf. It, it's dead. I said, yeah, I know you, what you're going to do. Don't do it. He goes, why not? He said, yeah, I don't, I don't, it bothers me. I said, I know it bothers you. Don't do it. Sit down. Right? So he sits down, not happy at all that I told him that he couldn't do a simple act. He says, I'm a grown-ass man. You tell me I can't go and like remove us. No, he can't do it. He says, why? And I said, number one, it's not your plant. So you shouldn't be touching it, right? And he goes, all right, well, yeah, you're right. And I said, okay. And number two, I said, this is what you do everywhere and all the time, right? Think about it. This is your life. And we sort of cranked it through, right? How he's constantly having to fix the world in order to keep his emotions where he wants them to be. And how this, you know, gets him into trouble with places, right? With people, right? How, you know, he has to like run out of the Medicaid office because something was happening that was agitating him, right? This is, you know, why he can't sort of like stay in a doctor's office, but just pop, 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 right? Because this is what he does, right? You know, I remember another time there was a fly buzzing around his head and he wanted to kill it. I said, no, don't, don't do that. And he goes like, again? I said, yeah, again, don't do it, right? <laughs> And he goes, it's not your fly, right? It's different than the leaf. It's not your fly. He goes, I know it's not my fly, but don't kill it anyway, right? You, again, this is what you do. He didn't, he didn't listen to me. He killed the fly, but that's okay. Um, but, you know, to an extent, you know, this is what we do, right, out in the world. So we have to do something different in here. Otherwise, we'll get the same result that we get outside in the world, right? So here, when we're sitting and we feel an itch, we feel the itch. If that takes us away from our breath... We see it, we let it go, and we come back. That's what we do, right? And if that means that we spend an entire day or two days or a week-long session basically never getting past the number two when we're counting our breaths, we just make friends with the number two. We don't get past the number one, we make friends with the number one. That's what we do, right? We simply stay with the practice without feeling the need to constantly fix stuff. I think it's really wonderful that Buddhism trusts that simple act of seeing. And I'm, I don't know much about religions, but I'm not sure if any other religion really kind of just trusts in that way, right? That really just by the act of seeing, we can come home to who we really are, right? And the Buddha in that fire sermon, that older sermon, the Buddha actually talks about this. You know, he said, seeing all of this, we grow disenchanted with the eye disenchanted with the forms that the eye sees, disenchanted with the contact the eye makes with the world, and disenchanted with the feelings that come from that, pleasure, pain, neutral, we grow disenchanted. And then once again, having done that for the eye, he does for the other senses and does it for the mind. Okay, I like that word, disenchanted, because it really points to that in our regular life, we are enchanted, hypnotized by everything. Right? And everything is constantly making us spin out. Right? You know, we, we have a feeling we don't like, but we're enchanted by it. And we gotta fix it. We gotta do something about it. So if I locate the cause of that feeling in you, well, I gotta do something about you. Right? Because that feeling means a whole lot to me and I gotta change that feeling. If it's in a, if it's in a leaf of a philodendron, well, I gotta take that leaf off. Right? Because then I can feel the way I wanna feel. Right? 
Buddhism really is about growing disenchanted with that. It's not about like not liking the world. Right? It's not about like not liking what the eye sees or the things of the world. Right? Um, it's about really allowing ourselves to open up to that fully because that's no longer dependent upon our transitory feelings and our transitory kind of need to constantly make adjustments. You know, I remember early on in a session, um, a fly landed on my face in session, and it wouldn't get off. It literally spent an entire period of zazen walking around my face. <laughs> right? And at first, I'm like, okay, i got to get rid of this fly. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. Right? I can't move. And this is back in the day when people were strict. Right? Monitors would yell at you, right? All that stuff, right? So, I mean, there was a certain, like, you know, strictness that I'm sort of glad we've sort of matured beyond right now, you know, but back then it was pretty strict. So I wasn't going to move, right? And this fly was not going to get off my face, right? So first it was like me versus the fly, right? Like, I'm trying to, like, wiggle my face, trying to do stuff to, like, get it to move, you know, well, maybe if I do that, it'll move. It wasn't moving. It just sort of kept wandering around my entire face. So what did I have to do, right? I had to sort of, I had to grow disenchanted with it, right? In the sense that it had to stop being an irritant. Like I could either spend 20 minutes letting this just drive me like just, just you know, off the charts, or I could simply relax into it. And that's what I did. I said, okay, it's all my face, it's all my face. I'm just gonna sit here in Zazen and let this fly crawl all over my face, and it crawled over my eyes, crawled on my lips, traced like my entire face over and over again. I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to let this happen, you know. And, well, first, it was, eventually it just became absolutely delightful, right? It, a, a fly's feet are very cool, in case you didn't notice. Well, you probably didn't because you never, probably never had this happen to you in Zazen. <laughs> but take my word for it, all right? It's actually very, they're actually very cool. So they got this little cool thing going all over my face. And actually, after a while, you know, when, when, I, when I stopped being kind of hypnotized by my own ir- irritation, it was actually was a lovely period of zazen in the end, right? Yeah, it really was. Why? Right? Because I didn't have to change it. I didn't have to fix it. Why? Because there was nothing wrong. Right? That right and wrong making machine kind of quieted itself. Right? That's what zazen allows us to do. And having done this practice for a little while now, one thing I've grown to appreciate is that this is largely what deepens in practice over time. Right? Over time, we just come to deeper and more nuanced layers of how we're constantly trying to adjust and fix stuff, how we're looking for permanence. You know, I remember a, um, a recent Dokusan, a private interview with, with Shugen Roshi. I told him, okay, I'm, I, I can see impermanence. You know, I can see my thoughts and feelings and sensations rise and fall. I've been doing this for a while. I can do that. But I still feel like all of that is happening around a solid core. Right? And I said, and that's visceral, I said. I can feel that. And I told him, you know, this is where I feel it. You know, when I'm sitting, this is where I really feel I am, right? I can, there's a feeling of I am, right? All my, all my senses, fine. That's all impermanent. Thoughts are impermanent. Feelings are impermanent. I get that. I'm okay with that. But there's something solid. He basically said, just kept, keep looking, right? He didn't try to talk me out of it. He didn't quote some sutra. I'm sure he could have, right? He didn't try to sort of teach me what Buddhism has. Yeah, keep looking. Basically is what he said, right? 
And I sort of feel like every interview I've ever had with Shugan or any other teacher, that's pretty much what they say, one version or another of, just keep looking. Right? You don't have to fix it. You don't have to change it. Right? You don't have to get in alignment with what the Buddha said. Keep looking. Right? Keep seeing. So, the world's impermanent, we're impermanent, both are impermanent all the way through, yada yada. What does that have to do with this world? This world, right? The world where lots of stuff is happening right now, right? The world where we felt the need to create this safe space for BIPOC people, right? And, and, and you know, if the world was completely and totally safe and accepting and equitable for BIPOC people, we wouldn't feel the need to do this, right? We wouldn't, right? So we, we created it because we needed a, a safe space, right? In addition to this, we also have annually a wild grasses um, retreat. I believe it's, it's, it's a session. It's for um, uh, people who identify as female. Same thing, right? Same thing. Right, there's a reason why. What does all of this stuff that Buddhism has to teach us about um, impermanence have to do with this and have to do with, um, with what's needed to make changes in the world? The scholar and Buddhist uh, practitioner, David Loy, really succinctly sort of sums this up. He says, Buddhism provides a different perspective that does not emphasize individual or social justice. He said, instead of justice, Buddhism focuses on delusion, our ignorance of what the world really is, which includes ignorance of who we really are. Okay. I find this to be greatly helpful, right? Because there's a lot of sort of concern, I think, among people, especially from marginalized communities who take up the Dharma, that you know, Buddhism doesn't really address social justice, right? This is an accusation. Right, that's been leveled, but maybe with some justification against Buddhism, right? Maybe against Buddhism as it's been practiced in a lot of mainstream Dharma centers, you know, maybe white-centered Dharma centers, right? That it's there's no justice. Where's the justice, right? I know one of the things that um, the um, the the Beyond Fear of Differences group, which is loosely speaking our our anti-racism and, and and equity work. The umbrella. One of the things we've talked about is, you know, when we go back to the old sutras, the Pali Canon, right, the first teachings of the Buddha, where's the stuff about justice? Where's the stuff about equity? Right? I'm sure discrimination was happening back then to one degree or another, right? Where is it? Why isn't it being, why wasn't it talked about? Where is it? Where is it in the Lotus Sutra? Where is it in the Mahayana Canon? Right? This is a, I find this to be greatly helpful for me anyway, okay, to really sort of reorient ourselves to what it is that Buddhism how Buddhism addresses this, right? It doesn't address it in terms of justice, at least according to David's, David Loy's understanding. It addresses it by focusing on delusion. In other words, it focuses on what leads us to acting justly or otherwise. Right? It focuses on the underpinning, the foundation of justice or injustice. And that is exactly how we view what we need in this world, right? How we've, you know, if, um, if people need um, trans people not to be visible, they will act on that. 
And in some ways, the mental process by which they act on it is not hugely different than my client who couldn't, who didn't want that leaf that looked different on that plant. He had to get rid of it. Right? He was mad at me when I told him he couldn't get rid of it. Right? And if it was up to him, he would have gotten rid of it. Right? Not, you know, obviously I'm not drawing an equivalence here. Right? But when we look at what's happening on the inside, what's happening in terms of what rises up in us as irritation or a feeling of wrongness and how we respond to that feeling of wrongness, right? There's the same processes are at work. Okay? The inability to simply sit with wrongness when it arises in us, right? irritation, intolerance, and just allow it to do what it does, which is to drop away, versus I need to do something in the world or something to these people, to that person, in order to deal with what's happening on my inside. That, in my understanding, anyway, and this is my understanding, is the level at which Buddhism hits things. In terms of our own practice, the um, Buddhist and scholar Rima Vesely Flad, um, she's a wonderful person, by the way. I, th- I think she was some, used to practice here. I'm not entirely sure of that. I, I'm, um, she's a professor. Um, she led a panel discussion, or she was in a panel discussion on, on Buddhism and, and social justice. And she, sort of, and she said, in mindfulness, and mindfulness is just seeing, right? In mindfulness, we step back and see the ways we've adapted to the conditions we've been dropped into. And we can shift those formations inside of us, and in that way we can be liberated. She said this in a forum on social justice. Right? So she really brought how we can use this practice to really look at what we've taken in. Internal biases, right? um, the weight of racism, transphobia, homophobia, sexism, misogyny, what we've taken in and how it's shaping us. And through seeing, we can liberate every one of those things. That's the power of practice. And that's another way of seeing how practice and social justice can come together as we take up this practice and as we move through the world. Right? That layer, that underpinning. So I want to kind of close my talk with um, with the question I sort of opened up with. What is the pure land? And how do we know when we've arrived there? There's a a quote by the the black female Zen teacher, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. And I read this years ago, and it sort of stayed with me the entire way, so I'm just going to offer it up. She says, she said, I love the very same people who would rather see my body lying in the street. I love the very same people who ignore me in my Dharma center. I love the very same people who would make me invisible. I didn't say I like them, but I love them. That to me is how someone moves through the pure land. A pure land that's exactly this land. Right? She's not denying any of the bad shit that's happening, right? 
she names it right there. Names it and names it very personally too, right? But she says, and she even says she owns it. I don't like them, but I do love them. This is how someone who has seen her mind, seeing how her mind is burning, seeing the burning minds of others around her, and who's seen the tranquility when that burning ceases, this is how such a person lives and loves. And it's a loving that doesn't depend on liking. Okay, liking, disliking, that's one of the things that, that she's sort of seen through. Right? The Dalai Lama even said this once about the Bodhisattva path. He said the Bodhisattva has compassion for everyone. It's not dependent on liking somebody. And he actually even laughed when he said that. I think an interviewer said, you mean even people you don't like? He said, yeah, of course. Like he even laughed, like, like that's ridiculous. Like, of course you can't depend on who you like, right? Like, dislike, that's just part of that foundation that we're constantly, we, we want to be liked. We want to like ourselves. We want other people to like us. We don't like, you know, that's part of, you know, that's just the fly on the face, right? That's just the leaf that we have to sort of adjust, right? You know, so much had to come together to make this session. Really, it did. All right, as a sangha, we've had to do years of equity work to get to this moment, right? To really have the people who run this place trust us. Trust us as lay practitioners, trust us maybe as practitioners of color in order to let us have the space and to run this, right? The, um, the lay sangha, and particularly the sangha of color, had to mature over years, right? Both in terms of numbers, right? Uh, a number of years ago, we, we wouldn't have been able to do this because we, just, we wouldn't have had the people to run this, right? As well as mature in terms of just uh, spiritual training to be able to take on multiple service positions, to keep this place going, to hold this space, right? And of course, every one of you who came here, even if this is your first time here, right? You've also had to come here through whatever path, paths brought you here. People who helped you, people who hurt you, whatever took you to come here, you had to travel that path to also come here, right? So a lot had to come together for this day to happen. You know, and I think it was, it's really nice that Friday was Daito Roshi's Memorial Day. Daito Roshi, for those of you who don't know, was the founder of Zen Mountain Monastery. He basically founded this place and was the abbot here for most of this time this has been here. Um, I, I personally, I think he would have been delighted to see this happening. Okay, this is what he wanted. Right? He really said I'm, his job was to establish a strong monastic base because he really believed that without a monastic foundation, this dharma wasn't going to make it, at least in the order that he set up. But his vision was always, once that base was created, was to empower the lay sangha. Right? And I think, he would have, I think he's probably smiling. Wherever he is right now, I'm sure he's got a big grin on his face because right? this is really, I think, was, was what, what really is in line with his vision. So, Sashin is not over, right? We got a handful of hours left. Um, let's really give it, let's give it up, right? Um, not just for us, right? For whatever iteration comes next. Personally, I would love to see a, um, a trans, non-gender conforming Sashin. 
Right? I would love to see a session for people of African descent. Right? I would love it. And I think Daito Roshi would have loved that as well. Okay? It'll happen. Right? It'll happen. And it'll happen in the same way this happened. Right? Because we're building a foundation. Right? Not just for us, but for everyone that comes in here after this. So, thank you everyone. Thank you for your practice and your attention.